It is a little odd to see you over video because you and I spent a lot of time together in the flesh over the last couple weeks. We were up in Canada. That's right. The Jesus Collective Conference. That's right. Hanging out together. We hung out at the Northern Booth. You had the Northern Booth. And and then you went on a tour of Canada for about 10 days and just got back. Yeah, I, I had a lot of good stuff going on in Canada, which, by the way, uh, Jonathan Tran, who's listening in right now, uh, I grew up in, in the great land of Canada. So uh, I love it. Uh, folks, uh, it's Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets the questions of culture for mission for, for Christ's kingdom. And uh, we're here on a second episode with Jonathan Tran. Uh, Jonathan, could you tell us again your position at Baylor? And could you shorten it down a little bit? Because the last time it was like three sentences long. Any chance? (laughs) (laughs) I'm the Baines Chair of Religion. That's as short as it gets. (laughs) Nice. I like it. And uh, we're so grateful to have you back on the podcast. Uh, uh, If you hadn't heard the previous podcast, folks, uh, we're focusing on Jonathan Tran's work on racism. Uh, he's written a book last came out last October, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. It really does get into some of the uh, it, it gets into a perspective on racism that uh, does uh, really gives us a second look at some of the ways not only a culture is engaging racism, but the church is engaging racism. So welcome back, uh, Jonathan Tran to Mike Moore and Dave Fitch space here. Um, to begin with, though, uh, this this podcast, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, how you uh, came uh, to be here in the United States, uh, and how this issue became an important part for you to investigate and spend so much time working on? Yeah, and thanks for having me on again. The question is central. I mean, every work uh, is autobiographical in some sense, right? And so... But really, my experience uh, as an Asian American, as a Vietnamese American, uh, is really the perspective from which my account of racism, uh, which, you know, from the last show, is pretty different. The way I describe what racism is, it issues from my experience as an Asian American in two senses, uh, how I grew up, and I'll say something about that, but also how Asian Americans are imagined in higher ed, uh, which is people have very little idea what to do with us. We're clearly people of color. Uh, we clearly have a history uh, that, that doesn't mesh with the stories of white identity or white nationalism, white supremacy. Uh, we're clearly victims of racism as the last two or three years of COVID and the 11,000 reported incidences of racism have shown. And that clearly goes back to history some hundreds of years old. And yet it's not quite clear that we're truly uh, victims of racism. It's not clear that we count. So if we think about hmm. diversity initiatives, which we talked about last time, people just don't know how to tell our part of the story. So we're in, in, within anti-racism, we're seen as not only, say, secondary, second-class citizens in that conversation, we're maybe tertiary. Maybe we only count in suspicious ways. And so what I try to do is take that experience, which I will say has been pretty personally painful, I've tried to take that experience and ask the question of what do we learn about race and racism from the margins of the anti-racism conversation? What do those margins gain us, right? And so how do we take the pain of being marginalized by that conversation after having first been marginalized by racism 
and learn something. And so I try to imagine my experience and the experience of Asian Americans in these kinds of spaces uh, as a kind of miner's canary I was going to release into the mine of American conversations and race and racism. And insofar as that canary got sickened, right, was harmed by those conversations, then what they suggest to me is not that we need to take out the standard conversation and concepts about racism and race and expand them out to include Asian Americans. Rather, the conclusion was something like, insofar as those conversations marginalize people like me, marginalize Latinx communities, indigenous people, people who are, say, transnational, insofar as it does that, maybe we need to re-question, we need to question all those concepts and conversations, right? And that's what I've done. Now, in doing this, I'm certainly taking the Asian American, uh, an, an Asian American perspective, but I will say it follows a line of thinking often referred to as the black radical tradition that goes back some hundreds of years old, I mean, years back. And so um, while it's, say, new in this particular articulation vis-a-vis Asian Americans, in my experience, this line of argument is, is pretty common. Um, it's controversial, say, in Christian and Christi- Christianity and Christian theology because we tend to read pretty narrow in, narrowly in our spaces. So, But anyways, let me get to the biography, which is what you asked about. So I came to America in 75 uh, at the end of the Vietnam War. Um, which followed three subsequent wars, right, uh, against Asian people, the Japanese, the Korean, then the Vietnamese. And so I came to a time in America where people like me were seen as not only suspicious as outsiders, but dangerous, perilous. Um, and so and that's the world I grew up in. You know, as I say in the book, I grew up in a world where racism was not simply uh, accepted. It was acceptable to be racist to yell things outside of a car, to call someone a chink or nip to their face. It was expected. I just expected that stuff to happen, and it just did commonly as a child. Um, So it was really that background that then later on I landed in the world of higher ed, which seemed to persistently deny I had those kinds of experiences, or if it didn't deny it, seemed to diminish its effect, its reality, its significance. And so what I came to learn is that the conversation in race in America is a binary conversation about white and black folks. There's something that is absolutely critically right about that, I should say, that the soil of this country, right, is has running through it uh, the blood of black folks at the hands of white folks. And that is a history I think we've only really begun to come to terms with. Uh, But there are also other histories, and I wondered about the way we think about race tends to diminish those other histories, uh, and if there are more fruitful ways to think about it. And um, you, uh, well, there's this thing called, in in at least academic studies of racism, the the model minority myth, and you you kind of uh, break that down, talk a little bit about its history and study, and how that illumines maybe uh, the categories of race uh, and how they how Asian Americans maybe don't fit or or are forced to fit or have to fit in certain ways within the categories of race it's very illuminating to me. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that helps get into the kind of account of racism I'm trying to contrast with what I described last time as identitarian. So identitarian is an individualist race uh, focused on racial identities. 
the remedy of which is to get us to think better about specific and constituent racial identities. Say you white folks think better about me as an Asian American. Maybe you come to realize I'm not a virus after all, that kind of thing. Well, the, the account I'm trying to suggest is that race plays a role of justification. It's ideology. It's the use of a of fiction that, you say, we can be reduced to races. Uh, it's the use of that ideology to justify the system of inequality and exploitation. It's what I describe as the ultimate gaslighting move. Rather than ask, why do our systems and structures allow this inequality? How do we allow this persistent injustice? We instead lay blame on the people who suffer it. We say it's something natural to them. It's on them. It's who they are. It's who they are racially. And so you see how the justifying move right, follows the inequality, the structures and systems. So I, that's my account of how racism works. And it's, it's a terribly massive set of realities, uh, not only national but global in scope and scale. And the argument then is if that's the case, then we need to begin to dismantle these structures and systems. So the, thing, the role that Asian Americans play in this story is to show how this works this way. Right. And so in Asian American studies or among Asian Americans, we often talk about something we call the model minority myth, which is this kind of absurd thinking that all of us right, can be categorized as one group, Asian Americans, and as a racial group, Asian Americans. So it doesn't matter if, you're, if your family is from Taiwan or from China, which understand themselves in very different ways. If you're from South Asia, if you're from a Pacific Islander nation doesn't matter whether you came here for education or as a war refugee, right? All of these things are reduced to a single race. So you begin with that first absurdity. And then the second absurdity is to say all those people are successful. Why? All those people are successful because all those people are one people. And insofar as some of them were successful, they're all successful. So the Taiwanese family that came to America for graduate school at Cornell is the same as the Cambodian family that came to America after the Khmer Rouge laid waste to Cambodia. And one comes with resources, with a plan about education, a vision of the American dream. The other one comes really on pain of threat of death, right? And so those are the same people. And the fact that one goes off to Cornell and that the other uh, has among the lowest high school graduation rates in the country doesn't matter because they all become the same person. This is the model minority myth. One of the most pernicious effects of the myth is the way it is used to discipline other races. It says, say, to black folks, hey, black folks, quit complaining. Be like Asians because they all go to Cornell and they're all successful. And if you stop complaining, that would be you too. So it's a disciplinary tool. Hmm. One of the things I try to say, though, in the book is, you know, Asian American theorists have been kind of at war with the myth for years. To me, it's, it's, it's a worthwhile war in a sense, but in some ways it's so obviously problematic it, that it surprises me that we've spent this much time with the myth. Rather, what I want us to see is that the myth is an inevitable construction. In other words, we keep on treating it like it's accidental. If we have attacked it enough intellectually, then it will go away. That's, I think, the wrong way of thinking about it. The myth had to be created. Why? Because what is race? It's a divide and conquer strategy. We have to come up with ways of thinking about one another that make other people of color the enemy. That's the whole point, right? So when Du Bois talked about this at the end of his masterpiece, Black Reconstruction, what he discovered was race was created, right, to wedge 
poor white people, namely poor white farmers and poor black farmers during Reconstruction. Why? Who gets away scot-free? The white elite plantation owners, the banking industry, that just what, you know, they just completely profited off that war. And everyone else gets blamed. White people blame black people, right? Black people blame white people as such. All the while, the elites get off scot-free. Similar things can be said about how race was imagined even within Europe. Cedric Robinson recognized this about the distinctions between, say, the English and everyone else. Race was used right, as a labor distinction, as a property distinction in the colonial Americas. The same thing with the coloni- in the colonial period with Chinese migrant workers. Race was used to divide and conquer. And so that's what the point of it is. We need to persistently remember that race A is not real. It's constructed for political economic purposes. And second, it's not about difference and diversity. It's about differentiation and stratification. That's why the model minority myth had to be created. It's the perfect narrative to set us against each other, to wedge us against each other. Um, right? and, and that's the power of the model minority myth. It's part of this political economy. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's in-depth kind of helping us understand the historic, the deep sociological historic origins of racism and its, its linkage to economics and economic exploitation, uh, and this kind of is this kind of gets into, uh, and, and I don't think we've gotten thick enough into it. At least we haven't defined it clearly enough for people to get their arms around it. Uh, we've gone through identitarian racism, but there's this other racism, uh, this way of thinking about racism <clears throat> that ties it to economics, that ties it to power that ties it to economic power and the preservation of that power, the justification of the inequity of that power. And so uh, it's almost like you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying um, um, we can't deal with racism without also dealing with the reasons why it works or the reasons why it stays in place, and that's the economics the uh, the inequitable economics uh, political economy that we are deeply ensconced in as people, and so to talk about one without the other is kind of uh, duplicitous or um, too easy. Did I get anything right there in that little riff? <laughs> yeah, and that's right. To me, it's critically important to hold those words together. It is a political economic analysis. There is no economy that can do what our economy does without being embedded within systems of power. That's the politics part. So they go hand in hand. And so we need a framework, say a lens, wide enough to see what's going on. I think the identitarian one does some work, but ultimately it is too narrow, too limiting. What we need is a wide enough framework to make sense of those identities and how they've worked out historically. That's what I mean by the political economic. Yeah, and and, and this gets back to... Uh, um I think uh, what I was saying earlier in the last podcast about Christian discipleship, um, I think uh, I've always said at least awareness, the like identitarian racism does the work, I think, sometimes to make us aware of whiteness, white supremacy, white ideology, replacement theory, the things that are going on. 
Uh, but I always say if, if that just leaves us, if, if the work leaves us with awareness and an awareness and more awareness and no discipleship, no discipleship, no discipleship. In other words, it just becomes something we're at war on ideologically. It actually turns against us. And so you're proposing that we actually have to do the groundwork of seeing how race works economically, even maybe outside my front door or down the street here, or the way our town hall ordinance committee works, or the way uh, some of our industries work or employment systems work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have, I got, have I got that? Uh, is there anything there uh, that rings true? Yeah, completely. So we need to begin to rethink how we think about these, and we need to look exactly at the concrete realities right around us. This We'll get to this later, but that's why church matters. Church is a concrete reality located among other concrete in the midst of other concrete realities like housing or employment. So let me just give you a couple of examples. So we often tend to think about something we call the racial wealth gap. Well, the racial wealth gap is part of a larger wealth gap. Uh, and the work of Matt Brunig, an economist in the People's Project, has largely shown that the wealth gap, we can attack it by way of a racial wealth gap. But there is a massive wealth gap growing on in our, in our world that's growing exponentially. This will do- then lead to forms of political disenfranchisement by which the only access we have to change this will be taken away from us because the democracy, democ- democratic systems are being undercut. Another example is how we think about housing, right? And so we tend to think about housing largely through the metaphor of exclusion. Some people are excluded out of housing, and we think that's the racial injustice. And certainly that has been. But increasingly what we're learning is exclusion is pretty terrible, but inclusion is equally awfully bad. Why? Because they're being included into predatory capitalist systems. Kianga Yamada-Taylor a theorist at Princeton University recently wrote a book called Race for Profit, where she documented where things get horribly bad, and they're already horribly bad for African Americans, was precisely the moment where there were triggers and mechanisms for black folks to be involved and included in the housing systems of mortgage industries that figured out how to make money hand over fist off of black people, right? And as the... Um, Uh, the historian Edward Baptist shows, the problem is there's nothing new about this. That's what chattel slavery was, the speculation of financial systems literally on the back of black folks as you had first and second mortgages backed by local and federal federal insurance companies that paid for uh, this indebtedness, right? And so these are systems... We need to begin to rethink how we're thinking about this. If we think about the... If we think the problem is a vague whiteness out there then we're going to miss how we're embedded right here, right in front of us, right? Literally, in my case, in the house I live in. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and this all seems uh, so, so overwhelming. Mike Moore, when you hear this, um, and, you know, you're you're actually in a home in west side of Chicago right now, sitting there. I'm in Westmont, um, uh, and I'm, you know, um, I, I, I'm... What are you thinking? I mean, so so so, Mike Moore. Uh, what 
I'm thinking, what are we going to do about this? Oh my goodness. Uh, if, if I, if I can't go rage on Twitter anymore about whiteness and white supremacy and call people out, uh, I, I ha- actually have to get busy and actually be present in my neighborhood and sort through things. What, what are we, what are you thinking right now about all this? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking how important, uh, the material reality is that we do this, do this work in. I, I imagine Jonathan, uh, I, I think this might be true, but you, you can let me know. Um, I, I imagine that a critique of your work is that you maybe don't take seriously enough that individuals do have racist views, that there is like a psychology, there's a psychological frame that needs to be fixed. But I, I, I don't see that. I see you dealing with something that's very material and important. Um, I think it, somewhere in the book, I think it's in chapter two, you have this analogy, uh, you say racial capitalism is kind of the economic inner workings. And then you, you write after markets serve as the storefronts. I, I wonder if you would say that individuals and their psychology, they kind of serve as like the customers of these storefronts. Uh, so, you know, just to play the metaphor out a little more, meaning that you're really concerned with like the, the material reality that these individuals are living in. That is what is uh, forming and shaping their psychological frames. That's right. So my book in some ways is completely about the racist mindset, about the diseased imagination of racism. It's just an account of how we get there. I don't believe yeah. we developed them sui generis, uh, that they, these concepts are, say, self-interpreting, uh, self-defining. We have not taken seriously enough the moral formation under capitalism, about under globalization, under systems that seek as the substance of their work, domination and exploitation. This goes on with an ongoing enlightenment philosophy or moral psychology that somehow we stand completely outside of these systems. Um no, what these systems do is they do deep damage to our psyches and souls over time. Uh, in the language of Cornel West and, and our the friend of a lot of ours, Stanley Hauerwas, capitalism makes S-H-I-T-T-Y people. Um, <laughs> and we need to come to terms with that. What I'm trying to show is the way that shittiness right, yeah. operates racially. And what yeah. I mean as the disease imagination, what I des- describe as a moral psychology of justification is that I'm driving around Waco, right? Go back to my gaslighting move. I'm driving around East Waco, and I see that it is a historically black community and that it doesn't have access to the same allocated resources as everyone else. Instead of asking the big question, I blame it on them. And think about then what psychologically I need to do to further that narrative, that it's their fault, so people who say something like, well, trend hasn't given us the diseased imagination of racism, I've tried to give an account of how it's produced and sustained right. over time. It doesn't just come about, and it doesn't have to do with, say, individuals in individual space. It's what happens to souls. I think Jesus spoke directly to this. I mean, you know, Jesus talks about two things a lot. talks about himself and the kingdom, and he talks about money and the corrosive effects of of money on the soul. And I think he means the political economy that produces a diseased imagination. And maybe one of the greatest violences this does on our soul is that insofar as we live in these systems and we justify them in our racism, then 
in a sense, we say to God, I don't need your help on this. I got it, right? And so, mm. you know, theologically, God can handle our sins. That's what cross and resurrection are. are. What God cannot handle, right, is our own justification for our sins, our ideologies that tell us we don't need yeah. God because we're morally upright, that we're not actually sinning. Mm. Uh, and so this is a, not only a diseased imagination, but the deepest diseased imagination. Augustine gave full language to this when he called this predation, privation, the taking of what is commonly held and entering into zero-sum logics that pits us against others and says, I don't need God. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I, I think you use this fr- uh, phrase in your book, a veneer of respectability. Uh, I love that phrase that I, I think it describes it so well that we needed a v- veneer of respectability to justify uh, the capitalistic enterprise that we undertook. Yeah. And so, you know, then the, then the remedy question, how do we begin to address and redress these realities is to say, if they are structures and systems that operate on individuals, then an individualist only prescription is not going to do much good. Rather, we need to rethink the structures and systems and how better structures and systems will produce better human beings. Um, And I think that's what, in a sense, the account of the church has always been, is the moral formation of people over and against their own worst tendencies. All right. Well, um, um, okay, so I hope people out there in uh, podcast land are understanding the difference now between identitarian accounts of racism and accounts of racism grounded in political economy, that racism is that which uh, is used as a justifying uh, ideological process to justify economic exploitation. So it's tied directly and linked in the processes of economy, banking, uh, home, the, what we do and how we justify economic inequality. Uh, so now let's move to, uh, did I get that right, John? Someone? Exactly right. Okay. So let's move to what do we do now? <clears throat> because I'm nervous. I'm upset. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have to clear my throat. And I'm worried, hey, what am I supposed to do now? I mean, Mike Moore, he, I would like to think uh, some of us have it together and we're doing the right things, but no. Uh, actually, we're not. And and so what do we do now? Well, uh, out of chapter five, I think I'm quoting you here, Jonathan. If racial capitalism racializes in order to justify dominative exploitation, then anti-racism should set about to diminish racializing that, in fact, facilitates that, do- that domination which means deflating identitarian modes of categorizing. And then B, uh, anti-racism should displace the exploitation as the basis of political economy. I think that's your words um, on my notes. I can't always tell if it's me, or if it's you I'm quoting, or if I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, but those are the two things you're asking us to do. Am I right? And, and, and you're saying the church has got to be part of doing such a thing because we need an ecology to do it, not an individualist answer to do it. Comments, John. Yeah, that's definitely me. You're a much better writer. So the, the, <laughs> the convolution alone suggests that's me. 
Um, yeah, so that's that's right. And so what I'm trying to suggest then is if we're talking about structural, systemic, political, economic realities, then only structural, systemic, political, economic realities will tackle this as widely as it needs to be tackled. The problem for us in our anti-racism is that we've overcommitted ourselves to the individualist mindset, which I described as overly convenient. It largely keeps in place a larger structures and systems. So what we need to do is first we need to rethink how we think about these questions. Is it doing much to think about them in individualist ways and there are, say, diversity DEI applications, as we talked about last time, diversity, equity, inclusion applications? I don't think it is. In fact, it largely skirts the most important issues. So we need to ask whether our analysis work. And part of what I try to do in the book is show how analyses based simply on racial identity, say we did it because of whiteness, does it actually help us understand the very thing we're trying to study and think through? The second thing I try to do is ask whether organizing ourselves around constituent racial identities, say Asian Americans, as a racial bulwark against anti-Asian American violence is going to do much for us whether these racial nationalisms are going to get quite get to the problem. And I suggest maybe they won't. And then the third thing that I try to do is ask the question, what other idioms, other ways of thinking about political economy do we need? And this is my turn um, to the church. The church does two things, right? So one, if racial capitalism is about a divide and conquer strategy, simply the gathering of people, the coming together across lines of diversification and stratification, right? The coming together, the refusing to think about each other in zero-sum terms, the refusal to think that I give something to you, I lose something. That itself, right, is not, say, a bonus of liberation, say, a, a nice outcome of liberation. It is the beginning of liberation, right? And so the idea of the gathering of the church itself uh, that we come together over gets all the reasons, all the divide and conquer reasons to remain apart. Itself is the beginning of revolution. Then the second thing the church does is enact different structures and systems. And again, this is in a sense what the church in the New Testament is. That is a God's political economy. I describe this as deep economy. The church as the Eucharistic expression of God in the world. And what is that expression saying? This is my body given for you. Christ meant that in his literal body and then the body of believers that would gather in Christ's name to enact a new political economy that says to the world, I am enough for you. And this should change fundamentally the way you think about these things, even in the midst of the S-H-I-T-T-Y powers of capitalism. So instead of looking at a community and saying, well, the history of inequality in this neighborhood gives me ample room to exploit those inequalities and to make money off of them. We say, how do we redress the exploitation without further exploitation? How do we imagine what we can give as a way to respond to and redress these issues? And so this is the church saying, we are in possession of all kinds of possibilities that if we dispossess ourselves of these things, then they accrue to good to the neighbors around us. Right. And so that's what I'm trying to suggest. Now, to be clear, this is not the only way we address this. There are larger social democratic realities that we also want to keep 
committed to. There are also other political organizing possibilities that we want to continue to commit to. But the church is at least the place we begin as Christians. Uh, the church is a social reality that, that uh, can disturb, disrupt, dislodge all the political economy that seems so overwhelming around us that exploits everything under the name of race. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's a compelling argument, but many of our listeners are going, where is this church? Uh, it's especially given the state of most of our churches today, which are driven and ensconced in racism. You have a, by the way, at, 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 in our doctoral contextual theology program, we do ethnography and Jonathan does ethnography on a church where such things are happening. You want to talk about uh, Redeemer Church and, and as an example of what you're talking about, Jonathan? Yeah, sometimes people have said to folks like us, and I think you all are a part of this, who centered the church as a way of responding to these things. People often say, where is this church you're talking about? And I'm going to say on Fairfax Avenue in Bayview Hunters Point. Uh, that's why I need to do this very material ethnography, the study of this community and their lived reality. Um, now, the difficulty of even making that move conceptually in a book is people are really doubtful from the beginning. That is, they don't think church can do anything other than enact evil anymore. So why? Because there is pretty clearly in our history an unholy trinity between America, church, and racism. That is an undeniable reality, it seems to me. There's tons of documentary evidence to that effect. But I want to say that's not the only part of the story of the church that we need to tell. We also need to tell the parts of the story where the church is actually church and actually does something. Uh, and if we give up that part of the story, then in some sense, I think we Christians give up the game. Now, I think there's too much kind of bad faith criticism of the church out there. There's good faith criticism of the church, and that should be rightly laid out. But sometimes in, in the kind of talking about this book, people have said, well, Redeemer isn't all that great. Um, or, you know, this church that I'm a part of isn't all that great. And our, we go into a kind of this critical posture that we academics have been kind of um, trained in. Um, whereas I want to say something like there's a good faith version of that argument and a bad faith version of that argument. Um, sometimes I get the sense that people reject the possibility of church just because that's just what they've been trained to do. And once you take that option off the table because you've been trained to do it, then I think you take away an incredible series of resources. The way I think about it is instead the history and present of the church and its white supremacy, right, isn't an excuse to no longer think about the church. It's a way of holding the church accountable to be better than it is. Um, and that's the work in front of us. So then, then, then I tell the story of a church that tries to operate out of the kind of racial capitalist framework that I've been talking about. And what they commit themselves is to a neighborhood and its structures and systems. Its structures and systems in relationship to finance, to business, to work, to education, to neighborliness, right? All these kinds of concrete realities neighbors are always living in relationship to. And what this church does is, insofar as it's a church that is part of a community, it tries to think about itself as a part of a community. And then ask the question, 
as a neighbor in this community, how do we, how do I become neighbor like Jesus calls us to be neighbors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is where we're at in the United States of America. Uh, a, a failed church. I might even question whether it is the church in many of its failed expressions. And it's time to renew the church to be the church. Um, I, I, I remember, uh, I don't know where I was uh, in what situation, but I remember being in the room with our friend Stanley Harawas and somebody asked him, well, where is this church? You know, and Stanley goes, it's where you go to church. <laughs> Everybody's going, well, what is he talking about? Somebody asks him again, where is this church? Well, it's where you go to church. So it, I guess he was trying to say, I'm no expert on Hauerwas, but I think Hauerwas was just trying to say we need to go and be the church where we go and be the church. And we're not doing that right now. Um, this is the challenge of your book, Jonathan Tran. Uh, how can we be the church? By the way, CCDA, uh, if you're listening out there, Wayne Gordon and other people at Northern Seminary and Lawndale, I mean, th- this Jonathan Tran's theology and uh, sociology and analysis of capitalism in the church is similar to what you all are doing out there in Lawndale. It's happening, folks. Mm-hmm. It's just going to take a different way of thinking about church. Um, well, we've had an unbelievable, uh, okay, I hate that word, unbelievable. We've had a very believable uh, <laughs> time together uh, chatting through the issues of racism and, and the state of things in culture and the church we can't thank you enough, Jonathan <clears throat> Jonathan Tran, <clears throat> for being with us. And uh, we look forward to you teaching uh, in our Doctoral of Contextual Theology program. Um, and I don't know, uh, Mike, uh, Theology and Mission Lectures, I think, are we have a few openings in the future there, too. Because this is such uh-huh. important, groundbreaking stuff. We need to do more work together. Uh, and we look forward to it. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. Mike, do you have any... Uh, um, uh, announcements to make or plugs of any kind before we sign off. Yeah, yeah. Next week, Willie Jennings coming to Chicago. Uh, we have three intensives on campus over two weeks. Fitch. Yeah, but no so one can I, sign I, up. No one can sign up. Yeah, for those yeah. But but that just booked. more. Yeah, they are they are booked. Uh, Fitch is you're just teasing people right now, aren't you? You're teasing. Uh, yeah. I am. Uh, Drew Hart's coming to teach one of the classes uh, from Messiah College. Um, Dr. Jennings will be on campus. So if you're thinking about theological education, um, give us a holler. Uh, Jonathan's going to be teaching in the doctoral cohort in a few years. So we're really excited about that too. Yeah. And if you have an opportunity to give us a plug on your platform, you know, a review that says something favorable, we'd be so appreciative. Five-star reviews only, uh, but thanks very much for that. Okay, folks, it's the uh, end of another Theology on Mission podcast. It's been great to be with you. We look forward. We have further guests coming up, uh, uh, and uh, we look forward to having you with us again. Until then, it's uh, over and out. Uh, Mike Moore. And Dave Fitch. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>